The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So over the last number of weeks in this class when I've been here, we've been exploring the teachings of the Four Noble Truths kind of in some depth because at one point the Buddha was said to have said, what I teach is suffering and its end. And the Four Noble Truths is an expression of that. First Noble Truth, there is suffering. Second Noble Truth talks something about how that happens with the arising of craving is the arising of suffering. So that's exploring suffering and the end of suffering expressed in the third noble truth, the ending of craving, the ending of suffering and the fourth noble truth being tools, supports, teachings that help us to find this way to the end of suffering. And so everything he taught, it is said, comes under these four aspects And so I've been kind of going through each of these noble truths and looking at the various teachings that are offered from the Buddha that are explored with each of these noble truths. And so today I wanted to explore the third noble truth. But to begin, I want to just give a little bit of context uh, about the four noble truths to kind of just overview the four noble truths and then uh, dive in a little bit to the third noble truth. So as human beings, we all experience some kind of struggle. Stress could be a subtler form of it. Sometimes stress gets really obvious. All the way through to very um, obvious and deep suffering, struggle, losses, loss of loved ones, pain, physical pain, the suffering in this world, meeting, seeing how we interact as human beings and have so much divisiveness and um, the centuries of war and oppression that come through our human actions. This is all suffering and we all experience it. And the Buddha in his... um, life is said to it at one point have gotten curious about this question of suffering and wondering if it was just you know inevitable that human beings suffer or if there's a way for human beings to be free from from suffering and what he um, discovered as he went on, started his own journey, went on his own journey to learn from the teachers of the day in the time of the Buddha and to explore in his own mind this particular question of suffering. Because in the time of the Buddha, the, um, the, the methods that were taught to um, settle the mind and to... Um, um, find the way to some kind of peace seemed to be a lot about, well, there were two basic kind of methods. One was about um, settling the mind into a deep concentration where the mind temporarily at least would be secluded from any experience of the world. And the other one was a mortification of the body in which um, it seemed to be some kind, I don't really know the details of the, those practices, the, the ascetic practices and also the, um, the, the practices of mortifying the body to, to starve the body, to um, um, harm the body. But I, I understand something, it was something about if the body got so unpleasant, the mind would leave the body, something like that. And so there were these two basic threads of practices. And uh, the Buddha learning those practices said, well, you know, the, the concentration's pretty good, but, you know, it doesn't seem to get at the real question that I'm asking, which is, because the, the suffering he discovered, um, it was only temporarily relieved through those practices. 
And so he began to ask if there is there's a way for a deeper relief from the suffering in, uh, that we experience. And what he um, came to and understood is that, well, there will be pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral experience that happens. Unpleasant experience is not going to go away. And so what we, we often think of suffering as being in, uh, in, in association with unpleasant experience. We often think of suffering as being separated from pleasant experience. And he said, those are going to happen. That is not going to change. He, he recognized, okay, that's the condition. That's the condition of the world. We will be in association with the unloved and we will be separated from the loved. And so his question got a little deeper. Is it still possible to have peace in the heart, even amidst those conditions? And what he found is the, 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 a great portion of the uh, suffering that we experience is not the, uh, the ex- experience of the pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral and the being associated with the unpleasant, the being separated from the pleasant, but rather our mind's relationship to that. And that, that when the mind can come into a balance around the conditions of the world, not be pushing away what it doesn't like and pulling towards it what it like, trying to hold on to what it likes, so not in this push-pull, not in this kind of greed for the pleasant and aversion for the unpleasant, confusion, checking out around the neutral experience, that when the mind can be present with what it is, with what is, then there's a, a letting go that happens, a, a release from the the vast majority of what we call suffering lies in our mind's relationship to the events of the world, not in the objective events of the world. And yet, I do. All, I feel like I always have to say this um, because we might think, hearing that, the relationship is is the place of the suffering, and that coming into balance kind of a non-reactivity to the events of the world, what the experience is. If we get ill, for instance, if our bodies get sick, a non-reactivity to that, non-greed, non-aversion, non-delusion around what's happening in the world and in our, in our own being. We might think that what that means is that we wouldn't do anything. We might think that it would mean we would just sit there and 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 you know kind of the the image of the of the sage on the mountaintop just not doing anything a, a kind of re- receded from the world or in seclusion from the world and yet the the teachings that the Buddha offered to come into balance around what's happening really really I think a, a lot of it is is to come into this, the sense of Yes, this is what is happening. It is not denying what is happening. We are fully aware of what is happening. And that place of not being averse or trying to hold on when things are pleasant, averse when things are unpleasant, isn't a place of non-action. And yet our minds kind of habitually in... Um, most, most of our lives we have been motivated by these movements of aversion and greed to the point where we think that that is how things happen. We think that that's how things are, are moved forward in the world is out of greed and aversion, out of confusion. And so we don't really understand the possibility of a mind that is non-reactive and how it might, rather than react to the world, respond to the world. That there can be a responsiveness in that balance of mind. That a mind that is aware and attuned to suffering 
in the world and in ourselves. And not resisting it, not fighting it, not holding on to something else will be motivated by compassion to alleviate that suffering. Not from hating and aversion and anger, but from a heart that's open and connected. And so this is the possibility of of the the freedom from the greed, the, the aversion, the delusion frees us from so much of what uh, we call suffering. That when we come into a place where the mind is in balance around what's happening in the world and in our experience, we don't experience the unpleasantness as what we would call suffering. We experience it as unpleasant we also experience it as, okay, this is what's happening. We are fully present and aware of this is what's happening. So this, um, the suffering that the Buddhist path frees us from, helps us to find our freedom from, is the suffering of reactivity in our own minds. And so this is what he taught he taught first about what is that suffering, uh, you know, that what I just described is a little bit of the teaching to understand suffering, that first noble truth. A little bit of that so that we can understand what it is that we are exploring, releasing from. That the movements towards greed, aversion, delusion. So exploring that uh, understanding of suffering. And then we begin to recognize that it is the movement in the mind. The second noble truth is that this, this suffering that we can be free from is created, is initiated essentially through a reactivity in the mind. And the Buddha pointed back to a particular kind of mental um, process of craving, wanting things to be other than they are. Basically, I think of this one as being a craving for things to be other as that than they have already come to be. That's a, that maybe is a, is, a, is a way we can understand that it's not about not taking action, but it is more about coming into alignment with what is already here. So what has come to be already? We often are resisting that, what's already here. And that is, as uh, somebody I think said, this is from... Uh, Star Trek. Resistance is futile to what is already here. It's the bad guys that say that, yes. Well, but it's also true <laughs> that, that in terms of what has already come to be, we can't change what is already here. And so the, the, the coming into alignment with, okay, this is what is, that is where the craving, we, we, we often, oh, you know, so much we see sometimes the, the, the suffering is about how, it's like, how can I change the past so that this won't be happening? You know, that, that's kind of what, what our minds do. It's like, well, what can I have done differently in the past so that this wouldn't be happening now? And it's like, well, that's a little bit like a waste of time in this moment because it already is here. And so the exploration of kind of coming into alignment with this is what's here, non-craving about something else happening or not craving to, to try to keep it going forever. As this is this moment, this experience is what is making me happy, so I better hold on to this. That's a kind of craving, the kind of pushing away of, of reactivity also, pushing away of the not liking is, is also... Uh, Kind of a kind of craving, the craving for things to not be what they are here in this in this moment, the craving to hold on to what is here forever, and so this craving is the is the basic kind of force in the mind that the Buddha points to um, when that releases when that craving releases, then our experience of the world shifts radically. When we come into alignment with this is the truth of things as they are, 
the heart not being constricted around that, not being in denial about that, and not trying to hold on to it, then there's a way in which our, our system seems to engage from a whole different perspective, a perspective of, of wisdom and compassion and patience and love and um, joy. And so that the, the actions that come when that craving is released come from a whole different place. So that's um, the first and second noble truths. And the first and second noble truths really in some ways describe our usual, uh, our habitual relationship to the world. That craving that tends to create the struggles. And then the third and fourth noble truths are kind of how we might shift the pattern of our mind. The, the third noble truth is a, a, a statement that it is actually possible for that craving to end. That is the experience the Buddha said, I found this. This is possible for human beings to do. And yet not easy. In fact, when he first woke up to this, uh, it is said that he, he, he was sitting um, under the tree, the Bodhi tree, and realizing the profoundness of the kind of subtlety of the craving and how deep it goes. So it's not just about wanting a cup of coffee or, you know, something like that. It really, it goes very, very deep, this craving. And, and he, sa- he said to have reflected This understanding that frees the mind from suffering is very subtle and people aren't going to get it when I try to talk about it. So that would, be a, that, would be, that would be a vexing thing to try to teach and have people just not get it. So I think I'll just sit here and enjoy this freedom from suffering. And then it was said that he had another thought that was like, no, there are some people out there that will understand this. And he reflected on his companions and realized that several of his companions would be able to understand this. And so he searched them out. He went and found them and said, and said hey, you know, here's another way. They had been, the, his, his companions had been practicing the mortification practices. And when they saw him and saw First of all, that he wasn't like incredibly skinny. (laughs) Uh, He had practiced the mortification practices to the point where it is said that when he touched his belly, he could feel his backbone. So that emaciated. And so after he woke up to this um, understanding around craving, he realized that the, the paths that he had been exploring, the mortification path, hadn't been so supportive. And so he, he nourished himself. He, he got healthy again. And then he took this journey to find his, um, his five companions. And when they saw him coming from the distance, they saw that he was, you know, had flesh on his bones. And they, they, they said, oh, we won't talk to him. He's fallen away from the holy life. But as he approached, they saw that there was a kind of a radiance about him. And they almost couldn't help themselves but to say, what have you learned? And so he gave them a talk. And it is said that the talk that he gave them was the Four Noble Truths, was a teaching on the Four Noble Truths. And so this... Um, this freedom that that he understood, he realized that it is possible for others to understand it as well. And this is what we have been the inheritors of, the teachings. And so he found for himself this possibility of a completely radically different relationship to the world and began teaching how it's possible to free one's mind from these forces of craving, greed, aversion, delusion being three kind of flavors of craving. 
And that's the fourth noble truth, the Eightfold Path. Wise, wise understanding, which is basically, you know, a little bit of understanding what is it that we can be free of? And wise intention to kind of aim ourselves in the direction of the practices. Wise speech, wise action, wise livelihood. So engagement in the world in a non-harming way. Kind of, this is a relational practice. It is not strictly a meditation practice. It, it, it includes, this path includes how we relate to each other, how we engage as human beings in relationship. And then the third part of the Eightfold Path is um, the mental training. Wise effort, wise mindfulness, wise concentration. So these trainings to support the mind, to understand. So this is where it loops back to the first noble truth. These, these trainings mental trainings, wise speech, wise action, wise livelihood, wise effort, wise mindfulness, wise concentration, support us in understanding the suffering as the Buddha pointed to it. Not being uh, in resistance and reaction to what's happening in the world and what's happening in our experience, but coming um, into a a new relationship with it. Non-greed, non-aversion, non-delusion. And so these third and fourth noble truths really offer a counter to the first two. The, the first two are kind of our habitual relationship to the world and our uh, experience of that relationship being struggle, stress, dissatisfaction. And the third and fourth noble truths are um, a pathway towards this completely new relationship to the world. And so the description of, to come now to the third noble truth more fully, um, description of freedom, the third noble truth described as the ending of suffering. The ending of the suffering in this first teaching the Buddha gave to its five companions, he said the ending of craving is the ending of suffering. And so what, this is, uh, this is the freedom that the, the Buddha was talking about. And it's described, this freedom, the Pali word for this is Nibbana, the Sanskrit Nirvana, which is more in our English lexicon. But nibbana is the Pali, um, the language of the Pali texts, the texts that are the tradition that this center is mostly connected with. And that word, Nibbana, um, sometimes translated as enlightenment, sometimes translated as freedom, um, basically has a meaning, a simple meaning, that's an everyday meaning. It basically is the same word that's used when something is cooling, so something that's warm cools when you let it sit out. And this is what this word means. It means cooling. The cooling of fire. Cooling of heat. And we do at times experience the, the craving, the, the neediness, the aversion as a form of heat. And so this is a this is it's it's an image or an analogy in a way, this the the word that's used for freedom, of cooling that fire of anger and confusion and and desire. So so this um, freedom is primarily described or defined in terms of what it is not. It's primarily defined not as the attaining of something or the getting of something but rather the releasing. And the main definition is the ending of greed, aversion, and delusion. The ending of craving. And so some, um, some, some quotes about this. These are from different sources, but they kind of flow together well. The extinction of greed, the extinction of hate, the extinction of delusion... This indeed is called Nibbana. 
Enraptured with lust, enraged with anger, blinded by delusion, overwhelmed, with mind ensnared, one aims at one's own ruin, at the ruin of others, at the ruin of both, and experiences mental pain and grief. But if lust, anger, and delusion are given up, one aims neither at one's own ruin, nor at the ruin of others, nor at the ruin of both, and experiences no mental pain and grief. This is Nibbana, immediate, visible in this life, inviting, attractive, and comprehensible to the wise. And for a disciple thus freed, in whose heart dwells peace, there's nothing to, to be added to what has been done, and nothing remains to be done. Just as a rock of one solid mass remains unshaken by the wind, even so neither forms, nor sounds, nor odors, nor tastes, nor contacts of any kind, neither the desired nor the undesired, can cause such a one to waver. Steadfast is the mind, gained is deliverance. So these descriptions perhaps sound uh, remote, (laughs) Uh, maybe hard to fathom. I mean, it certainly is somewhat at times hard to fathom what it would be like to be free from greed, aversion, and delusion. And yet it is, to me, um, um, an inspirational description. You know, when I first heard the word enlightenment and, and started meditating and practicing, I thought it meant that I would get something and be in some kind of like altered state or something. Something, you know, other than just being engaged in my normal life, certainly. And yet this description of the freedom from greed, aversion, delusion, we might, uh, over time, definitely, as I, I began practicing and began getting little tastes in just moments of the mind being able to release aversion around something. You know, just, just being with something that was unpleasant and like, oh, that's unpleasant. The mind letting go of the aversion to it began to get a taste or a flavor of, you know, just in a little tiny, tiny little, like, minuscule flavor that, oh, this might actually be possible as a way to live a life. And as the, 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 the quote said, this is Nibbana immediate visible in this life. It is not something other than, it's not, not necessarily something other than living in this life. Living in this life in a radically new way that may be hard to fathom. And yet the description is one that perhaps we might see as possible for us in this very life. The other description that I find um, Uh, inspiring is one experiences no mental pain and grief. That sounds pretty good. And yet it doesn't say doesn't experience physical pain. It is that reactivity that is released. The heart at ease with what is and able to act. Again, you know, it, it says... Nothing remains to be done, but that is nothing remains to be done in terms of letting go of greed, aversion, and delusion. Because as the Buddha's own life is is a is a example of, his initial inclination was not to do anything upon that freedom. His initial inclination was, wow, that would be hard. But he got up and he through the this other reflection that there will be people who understand this. It would be helpful to offer this to the world. And he did that. And so nothing more remains to be done in terms of freeing oneself from the, the forces of craving, the forces of ignorance. And yet that heart, freed from that, is inspired to act out of compassion. And that was that, was that movement of compassion in the, in, in the Buddha's mind. There will be people that understand this. His whole life was a demonstration of freedom in action, standing in, uh, in the middle of a battlefield, trying to, you know, kind of like Gandhi, you know, this is not 
this is not a good idea to be fighting over water. So he tried to stop a water war and it stopped while he was standing in the middle of the battlefield. And unfortunately, when he left the battlefield, the fighting continued. And yet, he tried. You know, he stood there. So his life is a demonstration of the possibility of freedom in action. And so the, um, these Four Noble Truths also have, each one of the Four Noble Truths has a, uh, an action associated with it. So they're not just simply statements of reality in terms of the first two, of how we get caught, and uh, kind of the possibility in terms of the second two, of what's possible. But the, the, the action associated with each of the, the Noble Truths points to how we can practice how we can engage. And so the first noble truth, suffering should be understood. And that understanding comes about through the fourth noble truth, which is cultivating the eightfold path. So the verb associated with the fourth noble truth is the, 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 the eightfold path should be cultivated, should be developed, should be engaged with. Those, those practices, the right understanding, wise intention, wise speech, wise action, wise livelihood, wise effort, wise mindfulness, wise concentration. We should learn about those and engage with them. And through the application of those tools, and wh- a lot of what we teach here is wise effort and wise mindfulness and wise concentration, how to settle the mind, how to observe what's going on, how to be with our experience so that we begin to understand it as human experience. This is, this, this is the, fir- the, the fourth noble truth being applied to our experience so that we begin to understand what is suffering. So we understand it. And as we begin to understand it, the mind begins to kind of get an education about what's going on and begins to recognize, yeah, that this uh, the greed, aversion, and delusion is something this mind is doing that's extra, that's optional, not actually necessary to engage in the world. And the mind actually begins to recognize it can let go of it. Begins to, and that's the, the, the second noble truth, the ending of craving is to be, craving is to be abandoned. The, the, the craving is to be abandoned. And, and abandoning may sound like something we do actively. And there are times in the path that we can consciously and do consciously set things aside, recognizing maybe not, the setting aside is often a not acting on, not repressing and not engaging in, so if something like anger arises, we might engage with the path by recognizing, oh, this is what's arising. This is anger that's arising, not repressing it, but also not expressing it. Opening to it in a new way with this practice of mindfulness. What is the human experience of anger? That shift from kind of being interested in what I'm angry at, how I can fix it, how I can change it, How can I fix the world so that I don't have that thing, so that I don't have to be angry? That's often our approach. That this mindfulness brings a different kind of perspective which explores what is this experience? Kind of turning away from what we are reacting to towards the experience of the reactivity itself. That's a whole different relationship. And initially does perhaps take us some trust to have confidence that that's useful. And so the abandoning here might be picking up the trust that it's useful neither to repress nor express. The abandoning of our usual habit around reactivity, which is often either repression or expression. And instead opening to this is the experience. That is the, the action associated with the second noble truth, that abandonment of our usual reactive approach to greed, aversion, delusion. And then this third noble truth, the uh, action associated with that is that it is meant to be realized. So realizing the ending of craving 
Uh, the descriptions that I made there, I, sa- I, I read earlier, that's a description of the mind that is fully released, fully let go, fully realized, this ending of craving at very deep levels. It's like there are layers and layers and layers of craving. It's like it's woven through pretty much how we engage with all parts of our experience. And it it is humbling to see just how deep it is. And yet there are, through the practices, as we engage with with mindfulness, as we turn and have this curiosity to turn towards the experience of suffering instead of our usual reactivity about it but curious what is this this is a human experience it's a it's a really it's a different approach and the the recognition of it as human experience is also supportive in that we realize it's not personal when we're suffering you know that it's it is the human condition that we are struggling and suffering and so in some ways it connects us as we turn and bring our mindful our mindfulness to our struggles our reactivity for me one early way this was expressed was i was i was noticing a lot of anger and in the exploration of it began to see some of the underpinnings undercurrents of the anger and some of the beliefs underneath it and um at one point realized that that the um the anger this particular anger about a particular person in one in one situation, um, that there was a kind of a, a wish or an urge in in me that the other person be miserable because of my anger. You know that 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 was the wish that that other person be in pain. And in seeing that, that was that was kind of humbling to recognize. Wow. That is in this mind. But, but in that moment, it was much more recognizing it. It's, this is a human experience. And the mind in some way kind of extrapolated to, no wonder there's war. You know, this is not just about me. This pattern of you know, when we've been hurt to want to lash out, this is a human pattern. And it's the seeds of war. It right in here, in me, in this being, this is the seeds of war, and so that to me was was an inspiration to 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 look internally, to begin to explore what might be possible to let go of, and so this um, realizing the ending of suffering, uh, you know, there there's certain ways that we get little tastes of it as we practice. Maybe just little tiny tastes at first. Little recognitions of, as I said earlier, the, the possibility of being with something unpleasant and recognizing that the, the anger or the aversion to that unpleasant experience. Sometimes the first thing we might notice is that we can actually be okay that there is something unpleasant and that we don't like it. And that there's a kind of a, a bigger container that can hold that. Oh, this is, this is aversion happening. There's something unpleasant and, and I don't like it. I really don't like it. But the mind can hold that. And instead of having this movement to try to fix it or change it in the moment, we can be a little curious about the not liking. And there's a, there's a different experience there that happens. We're no longer quite so hooked by the aversion and can hold it. And so that's a little taste of freedom because that, that aversion or that desire, often it's like it, it feels like it has to be expressed in order for us to be okay. And yet one of the first learnings is that, well, actually, it's okay to be with this anger right now and and it may even begin to help us to tease apart which parts of the situation this is one of the benefits of of being present with our experience as human experience because when there is something like reactivity 
You know, some pieces of that reactivity are our, you know, our, are our reactivity. It's, it's our hatred of a situation or our not accepting of what's actually happened. And some pieces of it are expressive of the wish to be happy and healthy and safe. And so the, the mindfulness of holding the reactive pattern can begin to help us to see, well, what parts of this experience are about discernment and wisdom and the need to take action in an unjust situation or the need to protect my well-being and which parts of it are about hatred and, and anger. And so the, the, the mindfulness begins to tease apart, help tease apart those, those pieces of the reactivity, allowing us to, in that non-reactivity, in that holding of that reactivity, begins to help us to, to, to tease apart the, the pieces of that reactivity, supporting us to begin to engage in a new way. And so this may be one way that, that one of the first ways that we feel a little shift in our practice, a little taste of the freedom, is that we can hold our own reactivity and just recognize, oh, this is what's happening. Aversion is arising. And then there may even be a, a deeper kind of letting go in which we are knowing the, there's something really unpleasant happening and we know it as unpleasant. And we are not reacting to it. It's just like, oh, wow, that's unpleasant. Yeah, that's the condition. That's what's happening. And what's an, a skillful response to that? So that the skillful response becomes predominant rather than the reactive response. And so this is another flavor of tasting a little bit of that letting go. We, in moments, at times, may see the mind uh, release. That, that, that third, uh, realizing the release from suffering. And so sometimes it feels like that, that the mind just lets go of a reactivity realizes, yeah, don't need to go there. It actually, it actually uses up a lot of brain cycles to be reactive that might be employed in the, in the discernment and wisdom and love and compassion to respond. And so we, we begin to see that release, maybe in small ways, just a little taste of that. And these little tastes of release are kind of, they, they point us in the direction of this fuller release. Something about those tastes helps the mind to recognize. And at least for me, it was kind of like this. It's like, yeah, this is, this is useful. It's helpful to engage in this path because the mind is so much more able to navigate the world without being tied up in knots. And so these, these little tastes give us the, the flavor uh, of the direction. It's kind of like they, they become a little bit of a, of a guide, of a, of a signpost, of something that says this way, this way. And partly this way, the feeling of this way, is because the, the, the shift that happens when we feel those releases is so palpably more in the direction of well-being than the experience of being all tied up in knots with reactivity. When we turn towards the, the reactivity with mindfulness, we feel the tied up in knotness about it. We feel that. We feel that it's not well-being to be tied up in knots. And as those knots begin to loosen and release, the feeling of that release. The, the, the system, our system knows. We don't have to tell ourselves, oh, this is useful. It's like our system says, yes, this direction, this is helpful. And so we begin to, to get the flavor, a little flavor of that. And the, the direction, because we've tasted it, it begins to pull us in that direction. And then the... A, a kind of a deeper 
almost release. It's, it's not so much release as it is not picking up. At a certain point, the freedom that we experience isn't about seeing a letting go happen, but more about seeing it's not worth picking up that craving. That the mind comes into a new relationship with experience and realizes, yeah, that holding on, that pushing away, is that tying up in knots is just not useful. And so over time we might begin to recognize that we're not picking up suffering that we used to, to do. And sometimes this might, we might notice this in retrospect. You know, over the course of years, and the Dalai Lama actually encouraged us to review our practice, not, you know, day to day, but more in five-year increments and, and reflecting, you know, what has happened over these years? Can you remember, recognize where you were five years ago or whenever you started practice and what has happened? What has shifted? Some of the shifts that happen, we don't necessarily see moment to moment the change that happens. There's a gradual change, a gradual releasing, a gradual letting go, and a gradual not picking up. And the Buddha used this gradual analogy a lot. He pointed to this path as being a gradual path. He he gave an analogy about a carpenter who picks up the same tool and holds it in their hand the same way every day. And that gradually, you know, if I, if I were to pick up this bell, you know, this, this striker, pick up this bell striker 70, 80 times a day, you know, eventually there would be uh, little grooves, you know, just very little, you know, Grooves, like when we put on our shoes. Shoes are a good example because you know you wear shoes, and the first time you put them on, you know if they're those shoes, those those kind of shoes, the flip flops that, or or the 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 house shoes that originally they don't have a left and right, but you put them on, and not very long, you know you can tell the left and right of them because your your foot has kind of stretched the little places of it. And likewise, he he the Buddha uses this analogy of the the handle and that each day the the carpenter picks up the tool and a little bit of the handle gets worn away by the placement of the hand and each day you're not going to notice what how much has worn away but after 5 years 10 years the carpenter picking up it, up the that the the tool will have a sense of where the hand fits in that tool and understand that there has been a wearing away and this is the gradualness of the wearing away that the Buddha points to. So the most of the way our path unfolds isn't about big, like, mind-blowing insights. Some of those happen at times. I can probably count on two hands the number of those that I've experienced. The really, the, the, big, the big kind of shocking, mind-blowing kind of insights. But the vast majority of the freedom that we experience is really, really gradual. And we might not know it is happening while it's happening. It might be known in retrospect. So we have a couple minutes if there's any comments or questions um, about anything or shared. Yeah, um, and would you pass the mic back, Bill? <coughs> and there's a button on the side. Yeah, thanks. Thank you, Andrea. My name is Ek. Uh, today I felt very happy because one of my doubt was cleared and cleared in a very good way. The word you have explained, Nibbana, which in Sanskrit means Nirvana. Uh, and in Punjabi, we use this word, my language first is Punjabi. So first I will tell you the doubt around this word was, I always I found people talking about we achieve something. This is something, is a different kind of state. 
even though i we use this in our daily language word but still i wasn't never able to relate that word mm. so i will tell you when we use this word in our daily language so the first time i heard this word saying by my grandfather when our one of our cows was holded with a with a wooden uh holding and tied with a rope and she ran away and my grandfather said nirvana <laughs> nirvana and the second time i heard this word from in our again language the birds was trying to free themselves from uh, a kind of holding around them a kind of net around them but when a bird found a way this said nirvana nirvana freedom so release so it is a release it is not something we should achieve yes. it is not something a state so now i understood that this is absolutely related to yes and so i was never able to tell someone that this is the word we use in our language what you are saying is enlightenment it is just a release yes it's something is holding you <laughs> and you got released that is nirvana yes Yes, Thank exactly. You. That that <laughs> we are tied by the fetters, by the bounds of greed, aversion and delusion. And the other piece I love about this too is that my sense of the word is that it's it's natural for that for for beings to move in that direction of release. It's, you know, it's it's um and and my understanding of it being cooling too. It's like if you put something that's been hot and just set it down it is going to cool it is going to release mm-hmm. that so this 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 direction is mm-hmm. it's kind of very very natural when we begin to get the understanding of how we are tied in knots just as the bird of course will try to free itself mm-hmm. yeah beautiful thank you thank you for sharing that that's really beautiful i feel wonderful <laughs> <laughs> And it's time to stop. So thank you all.